Hey, good afternoon. Welcome to the Middle East Forum speaker webinar series and podcast. I'm Stacey Roman and I will be moderating this discussion today. We're pleased to have Ephraim Karsh, editor of the Middle East Quarterly and professor at Bar-Ilan University, join us to discuss Israel at the Edge. Professor Karsh will speak for 15 minutes and open it up for questions. Should you wish to ask a question, please use the Q&A box located at the bottom of your screen to type your question. And with that, I will turn the discussion over to Professor Ephraim Karsh. Thank you very much. A pleasure to be with you. Uh, it's a historic uh, time in Israel uh, these days. Uh, the Netanyahu era seems to me on the verge of ending, uh, unless something very dramatic happens in the next few days. Uh, it seems that the new government will uh, come into being uh, probably next uh, Monday. And I don't think there is much uh, Netanyahu can do uh, uh, to change it, uh, despite all his efforts. Now, uh, on top of it, of course, there are the usual array of problems that Israel confronts, but in this respect, the uh, new administration, you have the Iran, you have the Hezbollah, you have the, the, the all uh, uh, usual suspects. But the, the major change is that uh, Netanyahu may be leaving because Netanyahu basically dominated uh, Israeli politics uh, over the last decade and to a great extent over two decades. Now, he has affected Israel's uh, foreign relations, but I would like to focus today on the issues that people tend to forget, and this is the, the domestic scene, because I think uh, of course, Iran is a threat, and uh, should it take nuclear weapon, it will be an existential threat. But uh, I think that Israel's main problem today is domestic, and the main danger to Israel's continued uh, success, uh, or even existence uh, over the long run, is uh, the domestic threat. Uh, when we run all these uh, political uh, campaigns, elections, people talk all the time, the big debate is the future of the territories, peace with the Palestinians, we have a new administration is going to push it forward, uh, Benny Gantz, the Minister of Defense, uh, already indicated in his recent uh, visit to the US a few days ago, that the new government is waiting to renew the political process and uh, of course, the, 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 main form, the main slogan is that we have to separate because uh, keeping the, the, the West Bank Palestinians, uh, basically it will end Israel as a Jewish state, uh, annexation, blah, blah, blah. In fact, this has been a red herring for a long time, uh, since the Oslo days. The issue of uh, annexing the Palestinians of the territories uh, is non-existent. I mean, Gaza has not been under Israel's control since 94. Uh, the Gazan population, I mean, uh, the Israeli army left eventually in, uh, 11 years later, but since 94, they've been living under Arafat's rule. And the West Bank uh, Palestinians, apart from 100,000 or so, have been living under the Palestinian Authority since 96. So Oslo basically ended this issue. There is not going to be an accession under any government whatsoever. The issue of the binational state of Israel, Judea Samaria or the West Bank is non-existent. On the other hand, Israel has a major problem inside. I mean, we have 20% of the population is Arab and they identify over the last 20 years or so as Palestinian. And uh, 
In fact, we have already been national state and the, this minority has become more and more radicalized to the point that many of them reject uh, Israel's continued existence as a Jewish state and the resort to both uh, violent and more sophisticated means to achieve this goal. Now this development has uh, been going hand in hand uh, with the Oslo process on the one hand and on the other hand with uh, Netanyahu's tenure in uh, office. In fact, Netanyahu's tenure has been inseparable in my view, inextricable uh, from the Oslo process. Netanyahu came in uh, after Shamir lost the election in 92, Rabin won, and then he took over the Likud. He opposed Oslo from the beginning. Uh, he was right, uh, I personally was wrong because I thought at the time that he was exaggerated, but basically if you check what he said already in 93, you see that strategically he was right about everything regarding this uh, process. And of course it made him the enemy of, of the media, of the chattering classes of Israel, and of course of the left. And since then he has been the, 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 the main ogre, and he has been uh, subjected to a kind of demonization, delegitimization campaign. And to this, you can add the envy of the so-called Likud princess, which is the second generation of uh, Likud leaders, uh, the sons of the founding fathers of the Likud, uh, starting with Benny Begin, uh, Dan Meridor, and Ehud Ulmert, and all this group, who couldn't take the idea that uh, a junior member of the, what they call the fighting family, the family that dated back to the Irgun came and took over. Now, Netanyahu was going to win the elections in 96 anyway. Rabin was behind him in the polls big way and the Israelis were becoming disillusioned because uh, they're being slaughtered in the streets. But then Rabin died and of course it allowed uh, this delegitimization campaign to gain momentum. Netanyahu nevertheless won the, the election by a whisker. And uh, this was a time that they had the election to the prime minister that changed the law uh, for uh, three election campaigns. And so they elected the prime minister separately from the party. So the labor still got more votes, but Netanyahu won. Then he lost in 99 because the Israeli public uh, still had hopes uh, uh, for, for the future of the peace process. Now, Ehud Barak, of course, promised a new dawn, a new era, an era of peace. And uh, one of the top Israeli commentators, uh, Amnon Abramovich, a television commentator, highly regarded for some reason, despite the fact that he has been wrong about everything for the last 25 years, at least. Uh, he said Netanyahu is uh, finished, Netanyahu is a footnote. In a year or so, no one will remember Netanyahu. Obviously, we know it's a different story. He came back, became the Minister of Finance, Foreign Minister, then he won elections and eventually became a, a, the longest serving uh, Israeli Prime Minister ever. Now, again, I mean, I'm not now trying to, to be for or against, but he has affected Israel's uh, foreign and domestic politics in a big way. I mean, he, in the first uh, place, to my mind, even though at the time, again, I didn't see it, uh, he slowed down the Oslo process. I mean, he managed to, to, to prevent uh, 
Israel from giving the Palestinian almost everything without getting nothing in return. Uh, Oslo might have collapsed anyway because Arafat never wanted to make peace, but Netanyahu slowed it. Then, of course, Netanyahu led Israel to a, a more capitalist, a free market economy. Israel used still to be quite a Sovietized economy, you know, in the 90s, uh, in the early uh, 20s. And uh, he had other things, uh, of course, in the latest uh, couple of years, he had uh, the peace agreement and so on and so forth. So what Netanyahu didn't take care of, as uh, didn't others before him, was the relationship uh, or the growing radicalization of the, of the, of the Arab uh, community in Israel. Now, I mean, the process has taken a place for some time. If you, you want to get this talk uh, roots, it can go back to 67 when they were reunited in a way with their brothers in, in the West Bank and then they're in the 70s at certain point. And, uh, so they're getting more radicalized, more assertive, more confident alongside their greater integration in Israeli society and the improvement of their economic and social well-being. Now, Oslo was a major leap forward because it brought the PLO into Israel's politics. In fact, it allowed Arafat to interfere in the affairs of the Arab minority, Ahmed Tibi, who is who has been since then a very prominent member of parliament, became Arafat's advisor which again is a bit uh, incomprehensible uh, for a state to allow a politician uh, to be advisor of a supposed peace partner who is still committed to your uh, destruction, but this is the way it was and he meddled in it and he radicalized them and the more and more uh, radicalized Arab party was established, the Balak party was established, for example, in the mid nineties which basically articulates uh, the transformation of Israel in into a state of, quote unquote, all its citizens, which means the end of the Jewish state. And the Arab politician became ever more assertive and uh, spelling it out in 2006, for example, there was a, a, there is a follow-up committee, which is a committee of all uh, heads of municipalities, which is the unofficial leadership of the Israeli Arabs. In 2006, they published their uh, vision for Israel, a paper in which they called the state of Israel a colonial implant uh, that had to be removed. And the Arabs had to be, the Israeli Palestinians had to be recognized as an indigenous minority, a national group, and treated as accordingly in the states. And alongside this, there was growing violence. I mean, Every time Israel confronted the Palestinian Authority, uh, whether it was in 96 when Arafat instigated violence in uh, Jerusalem because uh, Netanyahu opened some underground uh, tunnel uh, near the holy places in order to benefit the local uh, Arab uh, traders. Uh, there was a major violence, about 80 Palestinians, and. 30 Israelis, I think, were killed. So the riots in Arab cities, when Israel fought uh, Hezbollah in Lebanon, uh, like in 96, uh, there was this Kafar Kana 
accident where civilians were killed, uh, when Israel bombed some terrorist uh, site, their violence in Arab cities in 2000, when Arafat launched his war of terror, there were almost two weeks of major violence in which 13 Arabs were killed. And of course we saw it in a bigger, much bigger uh, uh, way uh, just last month when many Israeli cities uh, became uh, battlefields. Uh, Jews, uh, you know, synagogues were torched, about a dozen of synagogues, you know, hundreds of shops, you know, private houses were ransacked. Jews couldn't walk the streets really in all the cities which was so, so supposed to be showcases of coexistence. And then he died away. And all of this, of course, was uh, on behalf of Hamas, which, you know, is officially and openly committed to Israel destruction, and which was running missiles, thousands of them, on Israel at the time. So basically, you have a minority that is becoming more nationalized, more radicalized, more Islamized, uh, rising against the state whenever the state is at war. Uh, you know, you know what he did to the Japanese in uh, World War II when there was no chance of any rising whatsoever or no intention, and here you have it all the time. And this is, of course, if you don't speak about the loss of Israeli sovereignty over vast tracts of its uh, of its territory, I mean, the, the Negev, which is about 60% of Israel's territory, is basically a no-go area for many Israelis. Many Israelis cannot even drive to Elad these days without being, you know, rerouted by, by Bedouins who will rob them or force them to pay the money. I mean, uh, many government agencies pay protection money to Bedouins in the Galilee, in the, in the in the Negev and so on and so forth. I mean, even today, if you look at the news items, of course, they're not in the mainstream, but in the minor uh, uh, news outlet and the social media, for example, Galeza and the military broadcast station is based in Jaffa. So now they ask the parents of the soldiers who serve them to come to take them because they are afraid they'll be attacked in Gaza. Or in the holidays, the army ordered certain new units uh, to leave their weapons uh, in the base when they go because they're afraid that they would be robbed at home. Or soldiers were told to go on vacation on civilian clothes, not to provoke the Arabs. And of course, this week we have uh, the Jerusalem parade, which was supposed to be already last month. And Hamas said that uh, he considers it a provocation. So Benny Gantz immediately announced that he's going to cancel it. And, the latest news is that the police uh, canceled it. So basically, the PLO's role in interference in Israel domestic politics has been taken uh, by uh, Hamas. And today, Hamas basically uh, decides whenever it's provoked. Uh, today, it's the uh, flag parade. Of course, nobody talks about the fact that just two days ago, you had the anti-Netanyahu demonstration in uh, Tel Aviv, uh, central. Uh, uh, you know, Abima uh, Square, which is the national uh, theater, and uh, you had the PLO flags there uh, by the dozens, and not a single Israeli flag, and it was supposed to be a Jewish-Arab demonstration for coexistence, just like today there was a Jewish-Arab uh, aid in Israel Ayom for coexistence, you know, various intellectuals and writers, 250 people, two Arabs, 248 Jews. This is a Jewish Arab uh, 
coexistence. So what I'm saying is that the Arab minority is becoming, I think, the main uh, threat to Israel future. And if the Israeli government, whether it's a Likud or any other government, won't take care of this, uh, rather than try to bribe them, I mean, the Netanyahu government improved the economic lot of the Palestinians, of the Israeli Arabs, uh, over the last decades by a huge margin. I mean, they came uh, five years ago with a 40, a 15 billion shekels a, a plan. There's never been such a big thing, but it doesn't work because the issue is not economic well-being or a criminality of the Arab sector, as they say, but it's national radicalization. Now, to add, a, to make things worse, a, Oslo is also fragmented the Israeli political system. I mean, in 92, Yitzhak Rabin had 44 uh, seats on the Knesset. In 2019, uh, they got six out of 44. And in 2020, because Israel went to four uh, electoral campaigns over the last uh, two years, they got basically three seats. Uh, they ran together with Meretz and, uh, and Gesher, what they called uh, so they got basically three seats. Now they came back to six and everyone considered it a huge achievement. But if you look that only 20 years ago, they had 44, so you see where they are. And Likud too. What happened is during these years that uh, because the Palestinians really determined uh, the course of Israeli politics, uh, apart from one government, there hasn't been a single government over the past 20 years that finished its term. They all collapsed and they mostly collapsed in the 90s and early 2000s because of direct uh, uh, relation to the Palestinian uh, situation, uh, the so-called Intifada and terrorism before, and afterwards indirectly related to the Palestinian issue. So the Palestinians basically dictated the Israeli politics. And as of this, there was major instability and a lot of uh, opportunist and, and uh, egomania came to the, to the arena. You had a flourishing of a so-called, what they call in Israel, atmospheric uh, parties. I mean, parties that coming then going away. I mean, uh, Yair Lapid's father, uh, Tommy Lapid, established, he didn't establish, he followed uh, the Shinui change party. At a certain point, he got six seats uh, in 99, then in uh, the early, uh, in two or three, he went up to 15. And all of it just on hatred of the Haredim, of the ultra-Orthodox. And then after he went to zero, uh, then you had the third class. Some of them were ideological. So you can say, okay, it's an ideological party. You think the Likud is too moderate. You come with your view, but most of them don't have any ideological thing. These are one-man parties, one-man leader, no inside election. The leader decides who is going to be on the list. So of course, all of them are lackeys. They don't have any backbones. They just do what the leader said. And Yair Lapid went in the footstep of his father. And he started nicely with 19, uh, about eight years ago. And the last election, he got even less. He got 70, which is relatively successful, but really far away. And then you have the other ones. You have Naftali Bennett, who is going to be the prime minister in a week. At a certain point, he ran with the religious party, but he thought, oh, I'm too big on them. He established an old party. And in uh, 
2019, the first election, he didn't manage even to be elected. And because of this, we have all this round of, of elections. Just because he wasn't elected, and uh, Avigdor Lieberman, who is another opportunist uh, who found his own niche, uh, kicked uh, Sharansky out of the game. And uh, he decided that he doesn't want Netanyahu. So what I'm saying is that over the 20 years, ideology disappeared, opportunism came, and even opportunism deteriorated to personal politics. So people don't have any ideology, any commitment to anything. It's just about me, 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 the one to be prime minister, whether it's Bennett or Gideon Saar, whom I'm sad to say because he was my student, uh, Avigdor Limerman and others. The right wing has had very solid majority for about 20 years and definitely the last 10 years and even the last four years. And the fact that Netanyahu cannot establish a government is just because these people are against him. And now I'll just make the, the final call. And the question is, why are they against him? So I'm, what I'm arguing is they are against him because he has proven to be a prominent charismatic leader. No one on his own can ever can challenge him in the foreseeable future. And you don't see any foreseeable leader appearing over the horizon. And since none of them, and they all know it because the public opinion polls, despite all the, the, the legitimization that Netanyahu has been going for 20 years, show that if it was a direct election to prime minister, he'll beat uh, any one of them and off. Since they cannot do it, so all of them combined. And then you have parties, uh, you know, who just two weeks ago, two months ago in the election, said, I'll never do this, I'll never do this. They combined with people they vowed they'll never see it. Bennett was uh, called a fascist, uh, just uh, two past campaigns by merits and by the Labour Party and vice versa. And then they all combined just to bring down Netanyahu. To say that I'm optimistic that Israel's uh, internal uh, system today is so fragmented and we are going to have a prime minister that had uh, about uh, fifths of the votes of the large party and the uh, coalition that is not going to survive uh, for too long, whereas the Arab minority in Israel is becoming more and more assertive and uh, encroaching on the Jewish state, I cannot say. But now I think uh, you may have some questions. Thank you so much. We have quite a few questions coming in. The first one is from Wayne Lowe. If this co coalition against Netanyahu succeeds today, how long do you think it will last before the next election? And do you think it will produce irrevocable changes that later governments will not be able to change back? It's, uh, it's difficult to say. There are two theories. One theory is that uh, you know most of them know that if there are new elections now, they're going to be wiped out. If Bennett, uh, you know, puts himself to re-election in two or three months, uh, he's not going to be inside the Knesset. Bidon Sar is not going to be inside the Knesset. Uh, so they are going to do their utmost to, to keep the coalition because they have a lot to lose. On the other hand, uh, the differences are really huge. And basically they lose each other uh, no less than they lost Netanyahu. Once Netanyahu will be away, you won't have uh, the, the, the hate figure. So 
I think it will also depend a lot on the, on the Palestinian. Again, Hamas, I think, uh, will be able to dictate quite a lot if it challenges Israel, like now they have this uh, week. If uh, they decide to all this parade in Jerusalem, he may fire missiles. You know, if it happens next week, uh, Bennett will have to respond. He has the merits, he has the Arab party inside. So my sense is it's not going uh, to last very long. I think within a year, maximum, we'll have new elections. Thank you. This question is from Mike Ramirez. Uh, will the changed camp seek a two-state solution and as many have tried before and could it succeed? <laughs> the change camp, it's uh, basically the BDS, what I call the BB derangement syndrome uh, camp. They don't have any desire to make any change. And in fact, they committed themselves that they are not going to address the big issues because they cannot. Uh, as I said before, Gantz indicated to the American administration they are interested in opening talks. Bennett didn't even know, by the way. He was taken by surprise. He's going to be prime minister in a week. And his uh, would-be defense minister uh, discussed certain things with the US administration. It doesn't tell him. So Bennett and uh, Saar, and Lieberman too, even though Lieberman, you don't know where he stands today, uh, but at least Bennett and Saar, I don't think they can accept the idea of a Palestinian state. But they'll open negotiations, I'm sure, because the American administration will pressure and they would like to gain favor, and Yair uh, Lapid is going to be the foreign minister. They'll open negotiations, the American will put pressure, and this is another scenario where the coalition will collapse uh, sooner rather than later. Uh, unless uh, Bennett will completely uh, forget where he came from and what he believed uh, two months ago and uh, give in to a deal that uh, I cannot rule it out, but I think that uh, this will be uh, too much for the Israeli public. So I don't think uh, eventually uh, the two states will uh, be established very soon. And by the way, not only because of Israel, but because the Palestinians are not interested. People forget to talk about this. I mean, you know, they've been pretending to want a two-state solution, but it's not only Hamas that doesn't want it, the Palestinian Authority doesn't want it. You just read what they speak in Arabic and you see that, you know, there is no chance. So it's not going to be far, but it, it may be far enough to break down the government. Understood. Thank you. This next question is from Richard Gal Richard Galber uh, regarding the Israeli flag parade. Uh, you read that it was canceled by the police and it has been appropriated by Hamas and Israeli Palestinians. Um, if this is true, what are the political implications of this? I think I think it's just another step in, in Israel becoming just the diaspora ghetto. I mean, you know, you, you know, you, you try not to be provocative, you like to reduce uh, your profile. By the way, I just read, I don't know if it's true, it has to be, still we'll know in, in a day or two, that Hamas is organizing a Palestinian march uh, to Temple Mounts, to the Nablus Gate, uh, Shechem uh, Gate, uh, where uh, this flag uh, was supposed to, to go. So at the end, we may have a Palestinian march and the Jewish parade will be canceled. So I think basically, you know, you allow a terrorist organization 
to dictate your uh, national decisions. I mean, and to dictate your decisions in Jerusalem. I mean, you have been boasting for, uh, I don't know, 50 years now since the, since the war that Jerusalem has been united. It will be forever be the capital of the Jewish people. It always was since King David. And then you cannot even, you know, wave the Israeli flag in, in, in Jerusalem. I just saw now some picture in the, in the social media of a few young girls, I mean, uh, young, I mean, these are teenagers, went with Israeli flags uh, near the old city walls and the police drove them away. So, I mean, you cannot uh, raise the Israeli flag in Jerusalem. Uh, on the other hand, you can raise the Palestinian flag in uh, central Tel Aviv. Uh, so I think you add one and one and you see where we are heading. Thank you. From Wolfgang Schwanitz, is this a Hamas attempt to destroy Israel within, from within, by pan-Islamist politics? Yeah, of course. I mean, that's uh, what Arafat said. Arafat, when he arrived in uh, Gaza in 94, he made a speech, and already in his first uh, speech, he addressed the Israeli Arab, or they call them the 48 Arabs. And he said, you are our brothers, and he cited some Quranic verse, said that, you know, you are oppressed, but we are going to put you on top of the oppressors. And this has been Arafat. And now the Hamas has taken over from the PLO. I mean, the PLO is uh, by and large finished. Why did uh, Mahmoud Abbas cancel the elections, which he didn't want to call, but was forced to call after 15 years that it didn't happen, because he knew that Hamas would take over. It was clear that he called the election in order to cancel them. But this was what triggered really Hamas uh, to start the latest war. So the PLO is a spent force. Hamas took its place. And Hamas is now agitating the Israeli Arabs. Now, in Israel, you have uh, the Islamic party, which is, again, an offshoot of the Muslim Brotherhood. You have, the, at certain point, the split. You have the northern uh, part, which is the extremist and their leader is in jail at the time, and it has uh, been uh, declared illegal, a terrorist organization. And then you have the southern part, uh, Mansour Abbas, who is more pragmatic. Again, when he speaks in Arabic, uh, just a couple of days ago, he was interviewed on Jordanian television, and he said all the things that, you know, Israelis don't want to hear. But he's pragmatic, and he said, look, I'll take, I'll use the Israeli system to get whatever I can for my people. So I'm not talking about uh, national rights, but I want this and this and that. And uh, now Netanyahu in his desperation uh, at a certain point indica indicated that he was willing to use him as a, you know, if he stayed out of the coalition and wouldn't oppose it, but this was of course undermined by the religious party, by Smotrich. Now the opponents of Netanyahu said, you basically made him kosher, so you cannot oppose it. I saw that everything Netanyahu did was wrong, but of course, when it serves their cause, they can use it. So he's now part of the coalition and they promised him a lot. No one really knows what. It will come clearer and clearer in the future. But the question is, I have some colleagues who think, look, he's a, prag he's a pragmatist, it's going to bring a change in Palestinian society. And I have other colleagues uh, who think uh, 
it's a bad thing to get a Muslim brotherhood into the government. You know, the Egyptians don't do it, the Jordanians don't do it, the Saudis, why does Israel have to do it? Uh, the future will show, but uh, I'm quite skeptical and I keep reminding people that being a pragmatist doesn't mean that it's, uh, pragmatism is not to be confused with moderation. You know, pragmatism means I'm not going to achieve my goal by uh, beating my head against the wall time and again. You know, Hitler was a pragmatist up to a point. He got Czechoslovakia without firing a single shot. He got other things. Saddam Hussein was a pragmatist. Whenever it suited me, the head of a secular party, he put on the Iraqi flag, uh, Al-Akbar. Arafat was a pragmatist. He went to Oslo. He got much more through Oslo than he got in all his decades of terrorism. So I'm not impressed that he's a pragmatist. But I cannot say for now, that, uh, you know, I know 100% uh, that it's a mistake, but I think uh, it's extremely likely that uh, he's headed in a direction that the coalition doesn't want to acknowledge. And in the final account, it will turn out to be a mistake. I think Israel has to really rethink its relations. The Jewish majority has to rethink the relations with the Arab minority and set very clear uh, lines, red lines and rules of the games. They said, look, what happened cannot happen again. Forget about it. And you know, you have a half a million illegal weapons in Arab uh, neighborhoods. And it's not only in uh, criminal gangs, it's ordinary people have it. And they use quite a few of them recently. And think what happens tomorrow if you have a war with Hezbollah, which is 100 times more dangerous than Hamas, and then you have the Israeli Arabs taking these weapons out of their uh, storage and uh, start shooting and blocking, you know, main roads in Israel. The IDF cannot pass and uh, move from one arena to another. I mean, it's going to be a disaster. The Israeli government has to take very strict emergency measures. Otherwise, I think it will be too late. And I, I don't see this so-called change government is going to do a fraction. And as a last question, what do you think that Israel should do go, going forward? You mean uh, externally, internally? I think uh, basically, I mean, domestically, I think domestically is the major front. I think, as I said, Israel should clarify very clearly its relationship with the Arab. Uh, minority, I mean, a colleague of mine at Besa, Hillel Frisch, wrote a piece for us. He said, you know, the first thing is you have to collect these weapons, I agree. It's a big operation. You have to go to villages to surround them with army units, go house by house according to your intelligence, pick them up. There is going to be violence. People are going to be killed. But if you do it in several places, the others may fall in line. This is one thing. Then you have to define other things. You said, look, you know, you get, you know, integrated into society, you have full rights, you have everything, but there are limits. You know, Israel is a Jewish state, it's going to be a Jewish state, and there is nothing you can do about this. This is, I think, the, the first major issue. Uh, secondly, the IDF is to prepare for a major uh, multi-front war. I mean, you know, what happened with Hamas is a kindergarten compared with what can happen if it, uh, there is a war with, Hamas, with Hezbollah and then Iran may react from its own territory or from Iraqi territory. 
and then Hamas will join for sure, if it's with Hezbollah, it's going to be with Hamas as well, probably the Palestinian Authority, probably the Israeli Arab. I don't think the Israeli army is, is really set for it, I mean, for whatever they speak. They have to, to have a major emergency rearrangements there in terms of order of battles to increase unit. I mean, for years now, the IDF has been reducing its fighting units. It's absurd. I mean, you cannot uh, launch a major ground operation to Lebanon these days uh, that easily. So this is the other thing. Now, politically, okay, this is, it depends of, on your political view. I mean, they, they use it. I mean, there is Iran, of course. You cannot allow Iran to become nuclear weapon, which means that you may have to confront uh, the, the the Biden administration. The Biden administration basically is going into the deal again, is going to defreeze all the money. So Iran, uh, Israel may have to go it uh, on its own, which is a very big decision. I'm not sure they're up to it, especially that most of these people supported Obama at the time, Lapid, Gantz, others. So this is another issue. And the Palestinian, I think, the Biden will push, uh, the talks will continue, and the government will collapse before they reach anything. So I think what they need to do is uh, just keep the status quo while reinforcing your domestic uh, uh, strengths and the IDF strengths, you know. It's playing for time really at the moment. Interesting. Well, thank you so much. We've come to a close of our webinar. Thank you again, Professor Karsh, for taking time to speak with us today. Thank you. <laughs> Sorry, we went over the time. Uh, for our viewers and listeners, please join us Wednesday at 3 p.m. Eastern for an update from Ashley Perry. Thank you all for joining us, and I hope you have a great day. Thank you. Bye-bye.